Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. We'd like to welcome our guest, Mari Reed, who's here to talk about her recent book, Mastering Bird Photography, published by Rocky Nook. Mari, thanks for joining us. It's very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks to Rocky Nook Books, we're happy to be able to give away a copy of Mari's book. Just sign up for our newsletter at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. If you've already signed up, you'll be entered into the drawing. So we all see birds all over the place. And birds are a very attractive thing to take photos of, but it's really not simple. And we saw you had this new book coming out. Jeff and I immediately realized that this would be a great topic for the show. Let's just start with the basic question. How did you get into bird photography? What drew you to this in the first place? Actually, I was a bird watcher even when I was a little kid growing up in England, you know, from the tender age of four or five years old. We, we lived in the country and there were birds all around me. Uh, and I was interested in all things nature and my father encouraged that. Um, but I didn't actually get into the photography of birds until I went to East Africa in the 1980s, when I was invited to be part of a research team, a field research team studying birds in Kenya, in, in East Africa. And I know be joining them, the man who would ultimately be my husband over there as we're part of a multi-person team. And of course, we were living in a national park surrounded by wildlife. So it was kind of a no-brainer that eventually I'd pick up a camera and start photographing. Um, my husband was kind of horrified because it was his camera that I picked up. And, you know, and after that, basically, I wouldn't let him have it at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then it was during that time that I started doing wildlife photography and, then, and quickly became more concentrated on birds and bird behavior. It's a fascinating subject. So you say you were a bird watcher in the UK and they have a word yeah. for bird watchers. They call uh, them twitchers. Uh, well, twitchers are the really serious bird watchers. <laughs> They're the nerdy bird watchers. But They're why twitchers? Absolutely. Do they twitch? Twitchers are the ones that when they hear about a rare bird, they basically ah. drop everything and drive or fly or run, you know, to where it is. So they twitch, you know, so they can't hardly I get see. out of the house fast enough. I think. <laughs> okay. I, wow. We don't actually, I live in the country and we don't actually see too many bird watchers. Um, the, occasionally you see someone walking around with a camera or with binoculars, but I have birds in my garden. We have a garden that's about a quarter of an acre and typical British landscape. And we have hedges and roses and daffodils and trees. We must have literally hundreds of birds that come into the garden. Um, we have tits all over the place. We have robins, we have magpies, crows, pigeons. Um, we have a woodpecker recently. We have, um, a group, what's the term for a group of pheasants? Oh, um, a covey or something, maybe a covey of quail, Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, there's a group of pheasants that oh. live in a small spinny about 100 yards from our house, and they come into our garden. Oh, wow. Um, wow. My partner just put up feeders to try and attract goldfinches, oh, and oh, to top yes. all that off, we have buzzards that fly over our house. Now, how much photography have you done of the of all those birds, Kirk? Well, well, we'll link to an episode a few weeks ago where I actually talked about a photo I took of a robin. Um, we have this really friendly robin that'll come and stand on branches just a couple of feet from where we are and is always going to the feeders. We have lots of feeders out to get the birds here. 
Um, and that's the only time I've tried because I don't have a long telephoto lens and I, I feel like I don't have the equipment. Yeah. So as somebody who has not done very much bird photography, we have plenty of birds around here, lots of crows. Um, I just want to know, how do I make all the birds stop and pose where I want them to? Because when I yell at them, like, don't move, it doesn't seem to work. So They fly away. Yeah, exactly. So clearly I'm doing everything wrong, or this is a crazy thought, maybe birds don't do what we want them to do. Yes, they certainly don't do what you want them to. Um, but you can actually watch them and you'll realize they do stop every once in a while. It's just up to you to be concentrating on them hard enough to be ready for when they make that little hesitance. And, and the, the fastness of the bird, the speed of the bird is going to depend on how big it is or how small it is. Obviously, the little tiny ones zip around like crazy. But one of the things to do when you're first starting is to try big birds that are used to seeing people. You've got to start out easy and make it easy for yourself. So start out in the local park, you know, where there might be Canada geese um, or, or crows or something that people have fed that, so that are very used to seeing people or a duck pond where people feed birds. I'm not advocating feeding them yourself. I'm just saying people do it. So why not take advantage of it? So you can go to places where they're used to seeing people. Um, your backyard sounds actually great. Can I come over and shoot that at some point? <laughs> <laughs> sure. It, it is a nice area. We're, we're, we're about 100 yards from the Avon River, um, and it's mostly fields around here. It's a small village. Um, one day, we I had some friends over, and we went down toward the river in a field, and there were swans that came out of the river and started honking and almost chasing us. Um, so we get swans and ducks in the river. Um, it is it is quite nice here, but it is mostly farmland. So there's a lot for the birds to eat. And as I said, we put feeders out. We have fat balls and seeds and, and all that. Um, I guess that's the first thing you need to do if you want to attract birds, right, is you want to give them a reason to come near you. Um well, only the backyard ones. I mean, there are many, many different kinds of species of birds. And in fact, many of them should we shouldn't feed many of those species. We should try and find where they're going to feed naturally and then be there. You know, go there and keep still and quiet and low. Um, and really, that's the that's one of the essences of bird photography is to put yourself in a place and keep still and then you'd be surprised how um, close they would come to you. You're still going to need a telephoto lens because you want to magnify the bird as much as possible. So um, mostly they're creatures that don't want to be near us. They, they are going to fly from us. They're small most of the time. So it really does help to have a telephoto lens, something minimum, I would say, 300 millimeters. 400 is better. Um, uh, 500 is even better. And of course, there are some fantastic zoom lenses now. There's a Tamron has a wonderful 150 to 600 millimeters, which is a super beginning um, bird photography lens. You can extend all the way out there. Now, when you go out, do you think of, okay, I want to go shoot this particular bird and that will determine where you go? Or do you say, I know a really good, you know, uh, protected marshland at this location and you go there and just see what you get? Um, both of those apply. 
Um, if I've never been to a place, I am going to go, you know, somewhere where it looks like birds would be attracted and marshes and mud flats and things like that certainly are really good places. So are fruiting trees or trees with acorns, um, uh, areas where there's a lot of schooling fish that have been brought into a into a small area, um, like near a dam. Sometimes you can get fish that are kind of um, messed around by the turbulence and you can get gulls and eagles coming into that. Um, uh, yeah, I do also go to specific places for specific species. Like this morning, actually, I was out photographing red-winged blackbirds in a place where I know I go there many, many times every spring and I know where they are. I know what they're doing. And um, I just can sit down and wait for them to come within range of me. And just super, super fun. I was just thinking, my mother lives in South Carolina, uh, very close to the beach. And when you go there, there are pelicans, herons, sandpipers, seagulls. And these are all birds that don't seem very afraid of humans. You can get relatively close on the beach. Yes, indeed. Well, you'd be surprised they probably are used to humans. I mean, beaches typically do get a lot of visitation. Um, So, yeah, so they've probably seen people over their lives, you know, and and don't seem great places florida too any wonderful places in florida you can go lots of the wildlife refuges have got very very um approachable birds so those are well worth checking out so some places some wildlife refuges are good for you drive around in your car and the birds are so used to seeing vehicles that they're not going to fly away so if you have a bean bag or some kind of camera support over your uh, uh window ledge and rest your telephoto lens on that, and you can drive around and get some super great shots. Okay, let's just talk briefly about the rest of the gear necessary. As we often say when we talk about gear, this is not a podcast about gear, um, you've mentioned the need for a long telephoto lens. I guess you probably need a tripod, you need camouflage, you need, um, what do they call it, a hide? If you're really going to stay in one place for a long time, what else do you need? What is the essential gear that you need to take these kinds of photos? Um, You don't need a hide or a camouflage if you go to places where birds are used to seeing people. But if you've got very shy birds, yes, you will need to blind. Um, The the other thing to think about is your camera body. Um, One of the important things is to have a very good autofocus system. And most of them are these days, even the entry level camera bodies are super, super autofocus because you're really going to rely on that a lot. Because as you pointed out, birds move and you want the photograph to be dynamic rather than just a very static portrait. So any time you can get a bird in the mid action, you know, it's super, super. One of the things that people often talk about is crop frame sensors, which are smaller than the uh, full size sensors. And so what that does is it gives you the impression that your lens actually has got more reach than it really does. Um, and of course, that means the bird, it, the subject is magnified more. And hey, that's great. You know, so you get a larger Im- image size, a uh, larger subject size. Can you tell us what you shoot with normally? Currently, um, I actually don't have the highest end professional gear, you might be surprised to hear. So I have two camera bodies. I have a 5D, a Canon 5D3, which is a full a full frame sensor. And I have a Canon 7D2, which is a crop frame sensor. 
Um, and that's the one I mostly use for birds. And the reason I don't use the very, very high end um, things like the uh, 1DX Mark II, they're simply too heavy for me at this stage of my life. They're, they're, um, they're heavy, bulky cameras. I've got arthritis in both my thumb joints and they're just really, really hard to carry around for any length of time. So I've switched over to the smaller, lighter 7D2. That seems really important. We've talked about you know the the, the comfort of gear, and we've uh, we've also talked to people who go out. And I, I'm assuming like this is not typically a thing where you drive to a parking lot, you step out, you take some shots for 20 minutes, and then you get back in your car. This is something that you're going to be toting your gear probably in uh, you know among various locations throughout the day, and so you know weight and comfort becomes a bigger factor. Yes. So, yes, the comfort of carrying gear around or the discomfort of carrying gear around, maybe we should say. <laughs> so it really depends for me anyway how far I've got to go to find my subject. Um, if I'm walking into a parking lot and I know that there's a marsh like within 50 yards or so that where I'm going to be mostly working, I'll have my, my 500 and the 72 on a tripod and I'll just um, lay that over my shoulder as much as I can and walk along with it. Um, now, that gets very tiring and uncomfortable after a while, although you can get pads that you put on your tripod that will uh, pad against your shoulder. So then that's not quite so uncomfortable. But um, where if I have to walk a long distance, like I'm going to be going up to Massachusetts in a couple of weeks to shoot piping plovers, and I'm going to have to walk about probably about two miles along a beach before I finally get to their nesting area, well... In days gone by, I would have let put my gear in a backpack and carried along there. Well, now I've gone the lazy route and I've got a beach cart. <laughs> so nice. I put all the gear in a little large wheeled beach cart and, I, and I'll pull that along the beach with me. So old people, hey, there's stuff out there to help you, you know. To totally in favor of that. I, too, have some arthritis and carrying anything heavy is annoying. Um, just one last question about gear. Uh, in a photo magazine that I was looking at recently, there was a, an advertisement for some kind of, what would you call it, um, an adapter that you put on your camera to be able to put a binocular or what, what do you call those single things that you look for looking at birds and to be able to connect that to the camera as opposed to using an actual camera lens? Is that any good? Because they look smaller and cheaper than those big, humongous telephotos. You're talking about digiscoping. Yes. Well, it, it, it works, but, but it really only works if you can be sure your bird's going to keep still. Because those things are not typically linked in electronically. That's just scope. So you're not going to have a lot of focus working. So you're going to be manually focusing through that spotting scope, which is a pain in the neck. And if you, why would you want to do that when you can get a wonderful telephoto lens that has super autofocus? You know, so I don't recommend that. I've never tried it, but I could see the limitations of it. Any kind of action, you're, you're just not going to get anything with, with digiscoping. It just seems like a cheaper alternative for people who want to get into this without making the expense of, of a, a huge telephoto lens. Yeah, but, you know, there are some of the, um, the systems now, they aren't that expensive, depending on the way you go. I mean, a spotting scope itself can be very expensive. It's the little, little camera you put on top of it that's the cheap thing. But, um, you know, like a 7D2 is only, what is it, 1600 bucks. Now, that may sound like a lot to some people, but, hey, you know, this is, this is a, a, an investment, and a, a nice telephoto lens is an investment too. So it's worth putting the money into it. It really is. You get what you pay for, they say, right? We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about everything else you need to know to take good photos of birds. 
Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Okay, we've gotten the gear out of the way because we don't like to talk about gear. So let's start by talking about the easiest way to get started taking photos of birds. And in Chapter 9 of your book, Beauty Close to Home, you talk about um, shooting birds in the garden, the backyard, and, and all of that. How does one start? Um, I'm looking at a picture, figure 9.7, blue jay calling in autumn. You got this wonderful picture of a blue jay screaming, standing on the top of what looks like a broken birch trunk with these red leaves around it. I mean, come on, you must have paid the bird to be in that position in that shot. <laughs> you can do that? You can pay them? <laughs> I wish. Um, it is what we call a setup shot. You know, it's a backyard setup. I admit it, you know, but hey, I don't care. So what I was looking for was a pattern of behavior. I was waiting to see if any birds were using that perch. So I was watching, not doing any photography yet, just watching from my window every every so often. And lo and behold, they, they were using it. There were blue jays coming in and stopping on the perch before they flew down to the feeder. So that's a pattern of behavior that you can take advantage of. So what I did was I decorated the perch with some nice leaves. <laughs> and then I was sitting in a blind. I have to say I was in a blind nearby. And then I basically I sat there for hours, you know, several hours and waited for the blue jays to come in. And because I knew exactly where they were going to come, I could pre-focus on that point. And as soon as that bird showed up, I pressed that shutter button. And we're talking manual focus in those days. That was a, a Nikon Fuji film in those days. Now, of course, I'd use... All yeah, that, that was film film. Yeah. Yeah, that was film film. Some people don't even remember what that was. <laughs> oh, I do, I do, I do. Uh, yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm old. So this was film, and this is a little bit different. But when you look at the more recent photos in your book, and some of them are truly spectacular, how many photos do you take to get one that you keep? Um, it depends on what I'm trying for. If I'm trying to capture behavior, I might shoot many, many, many pictures. Um, not just gunning it for the hell of it, but I'm waiting for the decisive moment. And sometimes I miss that. Sometimes I'm not quite focused on it correctly. Sometimes the bird turns its face away. And, you, you know, it's, it's like any kind of portrait photography or any kind of animal photography. You want to have some kind of connection, eye contact or something with the, with the viewer, with the person who's going to be looking at the picture. Um, so I'll shoot many, many pictures, especially when I'm shooting birds in flight. That's very difficult. So I'll keep keep at it over and over again. And the, uh, if you can put yourself in a good place where there are many, many opportunities, that's the best thing. Then you can try over and over again. And eventually you'll you'll get very skilled 
and you'll get some great stuff. Yeah, there's another really nice one, figure 9.19. An eastern bluebird male flutters his wings on an arranged perch. And that's a perfect shot. It's the wings are up and you can see the color. You see the blur of the of the wings as well. Um, that's ideal. Do, do you shoot in burst mode to get to get photos like that? Yes, burst mode, definitely. High speed continuous. Yes. And, and you, using a, a, a high capacity and fast write speed um, CF card, a flash card, a memory card. Um, yes, definitely. There's something to think about in gear, to have a camera that can shoot in a fast burst mode and to get the best um, uh, SD cards that will allow you to write quickly. Um, I use a Fujifilm X-Pro2, and one of the slots has the fast write, and so I got a faster card so I can do whatever eight uh, shots per second. But with a slower card, you can only get two or three, and the buffer fills up, and, and so you can't go very quickly. Another question about the previous one. You said you were in a, a, a blind or a hide. If you're nearby, could you just do this using a remote control to control your camera so you're not so close to it? Um, you could. Then you have fo focusing issues. You'd have to pre-focus on your your area and just hope that the bird stayed in the same plane of focus as your what you set it for. Well, that was the one where the, the, the bird was on the birch thing and you said you'd pre-focused. Well, I pre-focused, but I was staring through the viewfinder having pre-focused. So, you know, I, I was lucky. That, that's an interesting word, lucky, because a lot of this photography makes one think that one is lucky. But of course, luck is nothing more than setting yourself up in a position to be able to be there at the right moment and shoot the photo at the right moment. Um, 9.24, downy woodpecker fledgling being fed by its father. I mean, that's perfect. You know, the, the, the interaction between the birds, it's not just sitting on a branch. They're actually you know, communicating or the or the following one, a blue jay adult flanked by two begging fledglings where they look like they're having a shouting match about politics or something. <laughs> Keep in mind, though, that those are backyard shots. And so I've been watching those birds for a long time and I know what's going to happen. And I know if I wait there long enough, eventually they're going to show up. OK, so it's not that's luck in a way, but the luck is um, what is luck. Luck is the fact that they show up at all <laughs> that day. Right. And and something you mentioned earlier about um, the, the first one where it was a place where the birds would go before they went to the feeder. And what I always notice is that the birds have to be able to go someplace before they get to the feeder. So in our case, we have a big lilac bush and we have a fat ball feeder and the birds go onto the branches and then hop down to the feeder and then hop away. So I guess if you put a feeder someplace and put something nearby, they're likely to stop on that nearby thing, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, sometimes you have to position it carefully if it's too low or too high. Or they put your heart of, they're a pain in the neck, really. They, they won't do what you want them to do. <laughs> you can you can do a few little things like um, put the little tiny seeds in a specific spot where you, where you know they're going to go. Or put a little tiny plug of suet in a hole on a tree trunk or something and know they'll go there. How do things change when you move from the backyard to um, being out in sort of more wild nature? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, one of the things that changes is, of course, the bird's surroundings. And when you're in the backyard, you can position your perches or whatever, whether so there's a nice clean background. And when you're out in the field, you have to look for that clean background and carefully move 
maneuver yourself so that it's behind the bird. Or you have to somehow incorporate the background or the surroundings into your composition. So, yeah, there's a whole lot more skill um, in, in the field. So when you're focused on a bird, one of the things I tell people is before you click the shutter, Look behind the bird, look around the edges of the bird and make sure there aren't any sticks uh, in the background, especially if they go through the bird's head in the background. Boy, that can be so distracting. And I see that so many times in beginners shots. And it just looks awful because your, your eye goes there instead of on the bird's face, especially if it's a dark stick or a light stick or something it can be a problem. You have issues of depth of field, which are more important here than in other types of photography. For example, figure 1020, cinnamon teal drake explodes off the water. Um, you have that shallow depth of field, so the background is blurry enough and it doesn't distract. Yeah, and but the background is also at a distance behind the bird. So that makes a big True. difference too. So if your background's too close, like if the cattails or something had been 10 feet behind that cinnamon teal, it wouldn't have looked nearly so nice. But the bird was in the middle of a pond and the cattails were way in the distance. So that's something to think about when you're positioning yourself too. So there's, a, there's another photo which I find interesting. There's a lot of action in this one. And I just love the lines in it, the, the, the dynamic. It's figure 1016, black skimmer skims through the water using its specialized bill to locate fish just below the surface. And you've got this, you've got the wake in the water where it's run its bill. You've got the wings spread out and then the reflection of the wings. I'm going to guess from what you've been telling us that you saw that these birds were doing this in this area and you waited around to try and catch one in just that position. That's exactly what I did. Um, this is a place called Balsa Chica Ecological Reserve in Southern California. Um, it's a place that I go to over and over again. It's very well known for bird photography. Um, and the, yes, indeed, the skimmers were going back and forth there. A certain time of year, I think this was July, when they're feeding young. And they've got to feed. They've got to get some food for those young. So that was when it was. The lucky thing there was that that water was glass smooth. That only happens early in the morning. And I got just a few opportunities with that bird. Fortunately, it was coming in at a wonderful diagonal like that. And so you have the diagonal wake. And then because I was looking slightly down on a on the bird from a... a um, a, a boardwalk that you stand on to do the bird photography, I could get the reflection in there as well. And that was a truly lucky and wonderful experience. I've never had that again. I'm sure you could if you went there every day, but I don't live there, so I can't. <laughs> Something that I'm thinking about looking at all this is th it obviously takes a lot of patience, but I also wonder, like, how many times do you go out and you end up with either nothing or results that you're not really happy with because, you know, you, it's, it's so dependent on the actions of something else rather than, say, like a landscape where you can go out and the sky will be great or maybe it will not be so great, but you get that, that like, like you know that the sun is going to come up in some fashion. But with birds, like, is there a degree of, you know, I just spent six hours in the cold and end up with nothing. And that that's just part of the game. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I get quite grumpy when I come home and I haven't got any any shots worth speaking of. So, yeah, that can be that can be a problem. And I do put a lot of work into it. Um, you use the word patience. Um, I, I call it persistence or sheer custard stubbornness more than anything. It's just that stick to itiveness. 
more than patience. Um, so you just have to keep at it. I think that's what makes, um, well, I'm not gonna, I don't want to sound arrogant here, but really good photo- bird photographers apart, that's what puts them apart from um, lesser types. They just put a lot of effort into it and they are very stubborn. They go back and try, try, try again until they get it. And even if they don't get what they started out wanting, they might get something even better or even more creative because the more you are out there, and this is true of a lot of nature photography, wildlife photography, the more you are out there, the more you're going to see potential opportunities. You're going to see things you didn't notice before, things that are, are happening that you didn't notice about or situate or places where you saw there's some outstanding light or some beautiful flowers that are starting to come into bloom. All those things can be important. So um, not just looking at the birds, but looking at what's around you as well and how you can incorporate that maybe into your shots. It's as much about appreciating nature as it is coming home with photos of birds. Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's always nice to come home with a nice photograph, but don't forget it's the experience too of being out there. And, and if you're not if you're not a budding National Geographic photographer, you just like birds. Enjoy the experience too. I mean, that's what it's all about. I I do that. It's, I really like being around birds. And there, I spent um, about three hours in a blind the other morning trying to photograph a ruffed grouse. They're they're birds that come onto mossy logs and drum their wings in order to attract females. Well, I got a few shots with hardly any light and then nothing else and I just sat there for hours but there were birds singing around me you know I could hear things in the in the in the background it was very fascinating and, and quite relaxing actually yeah okay Mari thank you very much for joining us this has been really interesting um I really strongly recommend the book because not only can you learn how to take photos in your garden or your backyard which I'm going to try and not only can you learn about the more complicated techniques you've talked about, but it is full of, I don't know, a couple of hundred of beautiful photos. I've always liked birds for what they are, but it's true that when you see some of these photos, you really get to appreciate them, seeing them up close and in movement and all that. So thanks very much. Um, There's going to be links in the show notes. And don't forget, if you want to try and win a copy of the book, um, subscribe to our newsletter. Mari, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I'm glad you enjoy the pictures and birds are wonderful. Jeff, it's time for our snapshots. I hope you've got something this week. I do. I'm going to talk about a podcast on our podcast. So I was recently a guest on the uh, the Let's Talk Photography podcast. Uh, the host, Bart Bushots, and I, even though I was just on the podcast, I think I just uh, obliterated his name. My apologies, Bart. Um, this is a podcast where he does some solo episodes talking about photography. Sometimes he has panels. And in this case, he invited me on so the two of us could talk about Apple's shot on iPhone winners. And basically, we just went through, there were 10 images, and uh, we just critiqued every one. And it was great just to talk about partially, you know, what's what's good about these images, um, which ones we weren't particularly fond of. There was one that I thought was just perfectly okay, but it was a good opportunity to just sort of dig in and talk about composition and lighting and color and, you know, what the judges probably saw in these and in some cases, you know, how to get similar results. So um, it's Let's Talk Photography, episode 67. Uh, Of course, we'll put a link in the show notes. And it it was a good talk. I, I highly recommend it. Kirk, how about you? 
I've got a podcast as well. Uh, regular listeners will remember that on episode number 14 last year, we had Chris Marquardt talking about his book about wide-angle lenses. Um, Chris does a number of podcasts, both in English and in German. And one of the ones that I particularly like, uh, he co-hosts this with Adrian Stock. It's called The Future of Photography. And they essentially talk about what's new in the technology around photography. And this can be the way the iPhone shoots HDR photos or um, is it, I think it's the Samsung that does really low-light photos at night. Um, they talk about things that have been patented and what's the future of mirrorless versus full frame. Most of the topics are interesting because they cover things that we generally don't talk about. New types of lenses, new techniques for panoramas. In fact, there was something last week they were talking about. I think Apple has just patented something, um, a kind of a selfie system where if multiple people take selfies and I guess send them to one of the people, the software kind of blends them together as if the people are standing in the same photo. I'm not really sure how that would work. If you've got five people taking selfies and you get one sort of panorama selfie of the five people. In any case, it's more or less brand agnostic. They talk about all kinds of brands. Um, they talk a lot about smartphones because that's where the technology is for taking photos. Um, it's a good listen. So the future of photography, check it out. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.